Isn't that the difference between the God that we serve and the gods of the world? The world, the world serves gods made in their own image, the created thing. They worship the created thing rather than the creator who is forever blessed. Gods that don't love them, gods that consume them rather than the God who sustains them. That's the difference, isn't it? Well, today I'm going to begin a series entitled American Idols. I don't know how long the series will last yet. That's up to the Lord. But uh, today we're going to talk about lest you fall. And we're going to see uh, Paul's confrontation with the Corinthian church's idolatry. So if you'll find in your Bible 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we'll begin with verse 1 this morning as we're looking at that. And I wonder... Can Christians get caught up in idolatry? Is that possible for a Christian to worship idols? And I want to tell you absolutely it's true because the Bible over 150 times warns us not to commit the sin of idolatry. In fact, it's even one of the Ten Commandments, right? Right? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And it doesn't mean you shouldn't put your other gods before God. That's not the point. The point is... Before God, and everything is before God, in front of God, you should have no other gods. Don't put place anything in front of God except for the worship of Him. And that's the point. Many carnal Christians are engaging in idolatry in this day and age, and even our own culture is saturated with idol worship. And you say, well, Pastor Josh, we're not falling down and worshiping uh, graven images in our culture, but no, we, we, we do. And, and I'm going to explain next week about the idols that we worship. And we're going to take a look at some of those idols in America. But just, just uh, to think about for today, just a little bit, I mean, people fall down and they, they worship idols of political power, greed, material possessions, even idols of syncretism, like I can have my God, my sin too, I can do it my way, a God in my own image, pride, egotism, even political correctness, and the, the Green New Deal can all be idols for us. We can worship anything, truly. I mean, we can worship a place. We can worship a setting. We can worship inanimate objects. Folks, we can worship pews and chairs if we're not careful. And I want to say this to you this morning. Whatever runs your life is your God. Whatever runs your life is your God. And, and, if you, and here's a phrase that might, where you use this phrase the most, this might help you when you say, I have to this. Or I have to that. What is driving that phrase? What is driving the motivation behind those words? That reveals what your God really is. And I and praise God, I have to come to worship this morning. <laughs> because it's my job. No, I'm just kidding. I have to come to worship because the Lord draws me and He compels me to come to this place. Whatever runs your life, whatever makes you tick, whatever gets you up in the morning and gets you going, that is your God. 
So when you behold your God this morning, what is your God? I think about whenever I see videos of people uh, and there's something crazy that just happened, a car accident or they lose something, all, all of their, uh, you know, whatever they're holding in their hand falls out or whatever, something like that happens, they slip and fall. The phrase that comes out of people's mouths is OMG, right? Oh my God. Oh my God. Well, it's, it's interesting when you watch people that say that, what it reveals about their God. Whatever just happened really reveals about a lot about their God whenever they say, oh my God, oh my God. And you can kind of point to what's really driving those people whenever you hear those words come out of their mouth. Augustine, or Augustine, however you pronounce his name, whether you like it one way or the other, when we get to heaven, we'll find out how it's supposed to be pronounced. This is what he said. Idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that ought to be worshipped. Worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that ought to be worshipped. Hmm. You know, a thing is meant to be used, like a car. Like I said, if somebody has a car accident and their car, or their car gets scratched or something, they say, oh my God. What did they just say? This car is my God. <laughs> Essentially. But what if, we, what if we, as a people, rather than worshiping the Creator, worships worship the thing that He gave us or the thing that He made. Well, then what do we do? We, we just made God into the image of a created thing, right? And we've used God rather than worshiped God, right? We want God for what He can do for us rather than to worship God because we are created to worship Him, right? Amen? Idolatry is worship anything that ought to be used or using anything that ought to be worshipped. No Christian ever wakes up. They don't wake up one day and say, I want to commit idolatry today. No, it's a, it's a slow fade. It's a slippery slope. Whenever we begin to move away from where the Lord wants us to be, one little step at a time, and we begin to slide into idolatry. And it all begins when we are tempted, and rather than resisting the temptation, we say yes. Rather than saying no, we say yes to temptation. James says, let no one say when, he's when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. And so, and so here's, here's where James is going with this. It's a slippery slope. You play too close to the edge and you wake up one day bowing down to the gods of comfort, of pride, of sexual immorality, of egotism, and you're led away into idolatry. 
And so, if we say, well, whatever runs your life is your God, we have to be very careful about where we allow our hearts to be tempted and how we respond to that temptation. And so Paul here in 1 Corinthians confronts the idolatry that the Corinthian church has become engaged in. And he says it really all boils down to how you handle temptation that's all around you. Because folks, we live in a world full of idols. Now what are we going to do? Are we going to be like Daniel and say no to temptation? Are we going to be like those men that said we will not bow down and worship the image that you have set up, O king? Now, if you found your place there in 1 Corinthians, we're going to read together. Um, we, let, let's just read together, beginning in verse 12, and we'll read to the end uh, there of the passage. Verse 12 and 13. Stand with me. So, Daniel, if you'll skip it over to verse 12 for everyone to follow along there. Paul says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed. Heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. That you may be able to endure it. Now let us pray together. Father... We are thankful for your word today. We're thankful for the power that's in this word today, God, that we can stand up under the weight of temptation and we can stand firm. We can say no. Lord, teach us to say no. Teach us to say yes to you. Father, that you would see your people rising up out of idolatry, Lord, and into the worship of the one true God. And Lord, that we would be a people with your praise upon our lips, Lord, and we would never settle for anything less than a relationship with you. And Lord, let us lead others to worship you as well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I want to give you three things that we have in every temptation. And this is going to help us fight against temptation, flee from idols, Whenever we're tempted, I want to give you three things today that we have, that we always have, three, three promises that we have from God in all temptation. And this is His provision for us. Number one, we have the Scripture's witness. We have the Scripture's witness. Now look at what it says in verse 1. Paul says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. So what Paul says is, I want you to be educated. How do you become educated as a Christian? Well, you spend time studying the Word of God. Now, Paul is going to take this Corinthian church through an exposition of Old Testament scenes from the Exodus. Now, that's what he's going to do. He's going to take them out into the wilderness wanderings with the children of Israel and explain to them how their idolatry led to their demise. It led to their death in the desert. And he's going to tell us, listen, this is an example for you. Okay, that you won't fall into the same kinds of sins as the children of Israel. And he says that our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and into the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they 
for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. The word overthrown means they were cast down. Just like idols, and the Bible talks about how the idols of men will be overthrown. They'll be cast down. Well, the idol worshipers were overthrown as well. And this is the witness. Notice it says, they all. Being in the crowd didn't save them. Just because they were part of the nation of Israel didn't save them. And for us today, just because we sit in a pew doesn't mean that we're safe. And it doesn't mean that we will be called up there when the road is called up yonder. Amen. Just because your name is on a church roll doesn't mean your name is on the roll in heaven. So you have to be careful. He says they all were there, but not all. God wasn't pleased with all of them. In fact, he was not pleased with most of them. There was only a few that made it into them. In fact, the Bible says, really, Moses, he didn't make it. Only Joshua and Caleb crossed over into the promised land from that original group that were led out. But they all were there. They were all part of the crowd. Then it says they were all under the cloud. Meaning near to God's presence or or even having a religious experience. They were able to see something supernatural. And folks, just having a good feeling when you come to church. Or just, just having an expression of worship does not mean necessarily that you have a right relationship with the God who created you. They were all under the cloud. And just having that religious experience won't save you. They all passed through the sea. They witnessed a miracle. I want you to imagine this for a minute. I want you to imagine a wall of water to your right and a wall of water to your left is what the Bible says. It didn't say just a land bridge appeared because wind blew. The Bible said there was a wall of water. A wall of water on either side. Now you imagine, I've seen some depictions with, with fish swimming. I wonder when they got to the wall, did they just fall out off into dry land and flop around? And Moses and the people had to, had to pick up the fish and throw them back in. I don't know. I don't know what that looked like, but I can imagine how amazed you, you must have felt with a wall of water to your right and a wall of water to your left, and you just passed through on dry ground, not, not moist ground, not soggy ground, but dry land. They witnessed an amazing miracle of the likes that we've never seen today. God saving you from physical harm doesn't mean you're right with Him. I mean, maybe you saw a horrendous car accident, or maybe you were even part of a horrendous car accident, and you walked away from it. That doesn't mean that you're right with God. Just because you had some kind of experience of a miracle of God doesn't make you right with Him. The Bible says they were, they were baptized into the river, excuse me, into the sea. They were baptized. And, and I think Paul is using that word to remind the Christians that just because you enter into a baptistry and you, and you get dunked, or you're christened as a child. It doesn't mean that you're saved because that water doesn't have any saving power. What it's talking about here is that the children of Israel, they went through and they passed through the water and they got to the other side. But that does not mean that they 
couldn't turn and worship the gods of Egypt instead. They were physically reborn out of Israel. I mean, out of Egypt, excuse me. But their hearts were still in Egypt. Participation in the the ordination of baptism doesn't save you. Sprinkled or dunked doesn't write your name down in heaven. And maybe some of you today, you're sitting and you're warming a pew. You're physically present. You've been baptized. Your name is on the church roll. You gave your tithe and offering this morning. But your heart is far from the Lord. Your mind is on other things. You didn't come to worship the Lord. Now the witness that you're hearing from the Old Testament and what Paul is using for the Corinthian church is, look, all... People have done that before. Many people have done that before. Don't think that you could get away with doing that because they didn't get away. They all ate and drank the same spiritual food. They had manna from heaven and water from a rock, but that didn't save them. And just because you come to the Lord's table and you participate in the Lord's Supper, and he'll talk about that later on in chapter 11, doesn't mean that you know the master of the house. And he talks about how the rock was Christ. And every time that they longed for Egypt and their heart was turned away from the Lord, what were they doing? They were rejecting the only hope of salvation that they had. And the wilderness represented the spiritual death that the children of Israel were in and that they suffered. And their bodies fell there and they died in the desert because they turned away from the only hope that they ever had. And folks, we said, going through the cloud, passing through the sea, being baptized, eating and drinking the same spiritual food, none of that could save them. Who was the only one that could save them? The rock. Who was Christ? Only Jesus Christ can save us in a relationship with Him. The Lord was not pleased with the Israelites because they were idolatrous in their hearts. And folks, when we are idolatrous in our own hearts, what we're doing is we're, we're rejecting the only hope that we have. Paul tells us in the book of Philippians that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess what? Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, that's the only acceptable worship. There's no other worship that's acceptable. If your heart is not right with the Lord and you come into this place and you worship, God's rejecting your worship. He's saying no. Whenever you make Jesus Christ your Lord and you bow to Him and He runs your life, now your worship is acceptable. Everything else is idolatry. And so we see the Scriptures witness through the Israelites and how they wandered through the wilderness and then God was not pleased for them because of their idolatry. But then secondly, we see the Spirit's warning. Look at what it says in verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And then verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. 
Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. And then you have Exodus 32. I'm just going to, let's, let's just skip to the next slide, Daniel. And I want to show you where all of these things come from in the Old Testament. This is Israel's idolatry. Uh, Exodus 32, Moses and the Lord are on the mountain together. And God tells Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. I think about that. And, and God didn't say my people. God said your people to Moses at that point. That's kind of like whenever um, the kids were out and about and the kids start acting up and Allison says, you need to go deal with your kids. <laughs> your, I'm like, wait, they're our kids. Not right now. They're yours. You know, and God's telling Moses, hey, they're, they're not my children. They're not my people. They're your people right now. And here's what they're doing. They're jumping around, dancing and worshiping a golden calf. A calf. A symbol of the gods of Egypt. Reincarnated for the people to worship. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord was angry with them. And then he goes on to say, We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. You know, the word for sexual immorality is pornea. And we get our English word porn from that word. But anything that is, that is sexual that's outside of the context of monogamous marriage between a man, one man and one woman is defined as sexual immorality. Anything. And Paul says we shouldn't indulge in that. Why? Because it's a form of idolatry. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says... Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits outside the body, but sexual immorality, uh, the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Numbers 25, we have the, the Israelites living near the land of Shittim, and they begin to worship Baal at Peor. And it says, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill those men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. All right, now what's crazy is, okay, so God had said that this would happen if they did this. So he warned them, and he told them if they went off and they worshiped the gods of the nations around them, they committed sexual immorality with their women, and they did all of these things that God was going to judge them. And all this was going to happen, and, and then it begins to happen. And God says, put these people to death, and he hanged these people. And then listen to what happens next. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel. Like they're hanging the chiefs and the people that have led the, led the people astray. And then one dude decides, you know what, I don't care. I'm going to go get this prostitute and bring her back to my house. And he does this in front of everybody. And they all see what is happening 
And so he brings her in. The whole congregation of the people of Israel. While they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. The whole nation's repenting. They're, they're being revived by God. Judgment has come. And the people are weeping at the tent of meeting before God to have mercy on them. And then... Phineas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it. He rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. Thus the plague of the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. You don't read about that in the children's books, do you? Children's Sunday school book. But it shows us how the Spirit feels about the sin of sexual immorality. It's serious. And it's a plague on our nation right now. And here we are as a church, and you can look at all the stats and the figures, and the church engages in the same types of of sexual immorality as the world around us. And we're bowing down at the idol of Baal and Asherah, just like the children of Israel. And then verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. And you know the story. From Mount Hor they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. Hey, what... Are we patient? No. I, I mean, I cannot stand to wait on the microwave. It just, hush, it takes too long. And the people spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of the land of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food, no water. We loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that the people of Israel died. Listen, there's consistency in these stories that Paul is using. And the consistency is when the people begin to reject God and worship something else, even if it's food and water, whenever they begin to worship something else, guess what happens? The judgment of God falls upon that idolatrous worship. And that's a clear warning. Verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Did you know that even grumbling is a form of idolatry? Why? When you grumble, you say to the Lord, what you've given me isn't good enough, God. That's what we're doing. That's what covetousness boils down to. God, I want what I don't have, and you need to give it to me. And we're telling God, that I'm more important than those other people around me when we covet. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Why were they grumbling? Well, it's because the ten spies had brought back a bad report and they said, we can't take the land that God has given. We can't do that. Joshua and Caleb said, oh yeah, we can. Caleb said, they'll be like bread for us, just a, a piece of cake. We're going to take the land. 
And the whole congregation grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives, our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. What was in Egypt? Their idols. And then he goes on to say in verse 11, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. In other words, Paul reminds the Corinthian church, who the Corinthian church is a lot like the church in America. I heard a preacher one time, he wrote a sermon, uh, a series entitled The Church Gone Wild for the first Corinthians. But the church in Corinthians is a lot like the church today. Worshipping at the foot of idols. And Paul reminds that church, the end of the ages is coming. Listen, what is going to happen at the end of the ages? Every idol is going to be cut down. And every idol worshiper will be cut down. And Jesus Christ alone will be worshipped. The end, the judgment is coming. And it's the Spirit's warning. And listen, here's the thing. The moment that the the temptation comes to you. If you could remember. The truth. That the judge. And the judgment. Is knocking at the door. You'd learn to say no. To sin. Amen. If we could just remember that. But even then, and even there, whenever you're in that moment and the Lord uh, is with you there, but Satan is knocking at the door and he's tempting you and you say, hey, come over just, just one time. No one will find out. This is really what you need whenever he says that. The Spirit is there inside you if you're a believer. And the Spirit is warning you. And he's saying no. John 16, 8-11 says, And when he comes, meaning the Holy Spirit, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no more. So the Spirit's going to continue to tell us, reveal to us the things of God. And then verse 11, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. The next time the devil tempts you to sin, tell the devil that he's going to go to hell. You can say, you're going to hell and I'm not going with you. Tell him no. Israel's idolatry stands as a warning. We see the Spirit's warning even to us today every time. But every time we're tempted, not only do we see the the witness of the Scripture and the Spirit's warning, but we also see the safe way out. Every time we are tempted, there is a safe way out. Look at what it says in verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. And I'm entitled the message today, Lest You Fall. You got to pay attention. Pay attention to the witness of the word. Pay attention to the warning of the word. 
On March 24, 2010, a banker was up on the top of Stone Mountain in Georgia. And he slipped and he fell 600 feet to his death. His last name is kind of ironic because his last name was Edge. Tony Edge. And he got a little too close to the edge. Right? Yesterday we were... We took our bikes down to Navy Point. I don't know if you ever get a chance to go out that way, but beautiful walk path, and we ride our bikes on the path whether we're supposed to or not, I don't know. If we're not supposed to, don't tell me because we enjoy it so much. Um, we ride our bikes around the whole track. I mean, there's part of it you have to go through the neighborhood, and it's great, but once you get back on, then you're on the water again. You go down this hill, and down at the bottom of a hill is a, a, a place where someone has put some swings out, and you can even swing out like over the water and back. It's so beautiful. I mean, the, and the temperature was just right. Just to, to, to lay down in the grass and rest after riding for several miles. A school of bait fish were making a scene and the water was rippling and it was just beautiful. Kids were swinging. Abigail was playing. And she was getting a little bit too close to the edge. Now, I mean, it's only, it's really just about two feet, maybe two, two feet or so from the ledge of the grass down to the, the sandy bank where the water is. But Allison had said, she had warned Abby and said, hey, you're getting too close. Back up. I said, I said the same thing. But she just, the next thing we know, her foot slipped. And she went face first. But thankfully, she landed on the grass. Because she's way too pretty to have something mess up her face. She just landed on the grass. And she was okay. And her mom said, get back up. And what do we do? As Christians, we play too close to the edge. Amen. Don't we? For a two and a half foot tall toddler, it's quite a fall. To fall all the way down there and land on your face. I know a pastor who was preaching out at a graveside. And he got into it and he was preaching real good and he stepped a little bit too close to the grave and he fell in. Talk about one, having one foot in the grave. <laughs> he fell all the way in. And listen, the place where we fall, you know, it might be the last time we fall when we fall. Let a man take heed lest he fall. Pay attention. If you seen any of those videos those TikTok videos or YouTube videos, not promoting either one, by the way. But you see one of those videos where there's a guy and he's, um, he's kind of in a marshy area and he's kind of walking. And he takes the next step and he just disappears completely. And he's gone under the water. I, guess, I could watch that and rewind that and watch that a hundred times. Just watching that guy walk out and go and fall. And then he's gone. You don't, listen, playing close to the edge... Playing too close to the edge leads to a slippery slope where pretty soon you are just absolutely saturated in the worship of something other than the holy God. But Paul says 
No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. It's all, it's all the same tricks that the devil's been playing from the beginning. What does he say? He tells Eve in the garden, he says to her, you will not surely die. Directly contradicting the Spirit's warning, directly contradicting the witness of the Lord whenever he says, don't take it or you will surely die. And he says, no, no, it'll make you make you better. It'll make you feel really good. And Eve's vision becomes clouded. She she views the fruit and she says it is desirable. She looks upon it as desirable. And then she says it's desirable to make one wise. And 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 those three things that the devil's been doing from the very beginning. John reveals it to us in 1 John. He says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And who, who is the ruler of the world? Well, the devil. And he says, it's common to man. Everybody deals with the same temptations. And so I hear some people say, well, I, I just struggle with it. Well, so do I. And so does the person next to you. You're not unique. Or they say, oh, my struggles. But what does Paul say? No, it's not your struggles or my struggles. We all struggle with the same temptations. They're common to man. So you can't sit in the pew and think, well, I'm worse off than other people. I'm more tempted than other people are. No, folks. We all suffer the same temptations. We all go through the same things. It's common to man. But then he goes on to say, and he, God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Now, I've heard people say, well, God won't give you more than you can take. Uh, is that what that says? No, this is where they come up with that, but that's not what this passage says. God gives us more than we can handle on our own all the time. Even standing behind this breezy pulpit, um, I love it, though, by the way. It's very nice. This right here is beyond me. Much of what the Lord has called you to do is beyond you. You can't do it on your own strength. The Lord has to help you. But what does he say? Whenever you are tempted, he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. Why? Because he equips you in the temptation. And this is what he gives you anytime you're tempted. He gives you the scripture's witness. He gives you the spirit's warning. And then he gives you the way out, the safe way out. And what does he say? He's going to build that bridge over you. The, the, the imagery is like architecture, like, a, like an arch that's over you. And he says he will provide the way of escape. It's a doorway out that you may be able to endure it. And the word endure means to stand up under. To stand up under it. Spurgeon said, what settings are you in when you fall? Avoid them. What props do you have that support your sin? Eliminate them. What people are you usually with? Avoid them. There are two equally damning lies that Satan wants us to believe. Just once won't hurt. Or now that you've ruined your life, you're beyond God's use and you might as well enjoy sinning. Then he says, learn to say no. 
it will be of more use to you than to be able to read Latin. Here's my three that I would give you. This is the way of escape. Stay in the presence of God. Surround yourself with the people of God. And stand in the power of God. Man, when you're tempted next time, just use the name of Jesus. Say Jesus. Just say His name. The demons have to flee. Say His name and and power is unleashed in your life. Bow to His name and watch Satan fall on his face. I wonder today, are you... Have you been like the Corinthian church? Have you been playing a little too close to the edge? Are you in danger of falling into the sin of idolatry? Or can you say like David, and this is my prayer for you today... Can you say with David, Psalm 26 and verse 12, listen to what David says. He says, my foot stands on level ground. Can you say that? My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. What does he say? He said, I'm not bowing to any other thing. I'm going to stand on level ground and I'm going to bow down to the Lord only. Would you bow your heads? Close your eyes. We can manufacture idols of all different kinds. Someone once said that the the heart of mankind is an idol factory. We just create these things to worship. We bow down to them. But listen, none of them give life. None of them love you. The only thing they will do is consume you. And it all starts whenever you let just a little, you give the devil just one little foothold in your life and you say yes to temptation. And if you've been caught up in that, today is a day for you to be set free. For you to declare once and for all, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I will not bow down to any lesser thing, no matter what it is. And so today, the Spirit has convicted you. Then turn it over to the Lord and say, Lord, I want this out of my life. I reject this. Lord, cast down my idol. I give it to you. And today, if if you're in this place and you've heard about a God that loves you, you've heard it sung in song, You've heard about how the Lord Jesus is the one on the throne. Let me tell you about what He did. He lived a sinless life. He never bowed His heart to an idol. But then, He stretched His arms out wide and He died on a sinner's cross so that you could be set free from your sin. And He's saying to you, He's calling you today. And He's saying, don't don't worship any other lesser thing. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest for your soul. And he's, he's telling you to come. But what that means is that you confess your sin and you repent of it and you tell Jesus, I want you to run my life. I don't want to run my life. I don't want any idol to run my life. I want you and, and you alone to be my Lord. 
to be my master. And if you're willing to do that, he will save you today. He'll make you a new person from the inside out. And he will give you a home in heaven. He'll write your name down on the Lamb's, in the Lamb's book of life. And you'll spend eternity with him. And you'll have life and meaning and purpose abundant here on this earth. If you're willing to surrender your heart to him. And if that's the case for you, I want to lead you in a simple prayer. So with your heads bowed, your eyes closed, just pray this simple prayer with me. Say, Lord Jesus, I admit to you that I am a sinner. I've done things I know are wrong. I have failed to do the things I know are right. And I deserve the penalty for my sin. But Jesus, I believe that you lived a sinless life. And you died for me on the cross to take away my sin. So Jesus, I ask you to forgive me. Come into my heart. Cleanse me. Make me a new person. I turn away from anything else and I worship you as my Lord and Savior. Give me a home in heaven with you when I die. I'll spend the rest of my life loving you and serving you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now would you stand with me? If you meant that prayer, the Lord has heard that prayer. He's answered that prayer. And instantly and supernaturally, He has saved you and made you a new person. You've been born again, the Bible says. If you meant that with all your heart. And if that's true of you, you're like a baby in Christ. And you need nourishment. And so this invitation is for you that if you've prayed that prayer, you meant that prayer with all your heart, you come and we'll celebrate with you the new life in Christ. We'll give you resources so you can grow and be a healthy, maturing Christian. We'll connect you to a small group Sunday school class. And we'll offer you believer's baptism so you can seal that with that promise. If you're looking for a church home, and you feel led to come to Myrtle Grove Baptist Church, we welcome you. And this invitation is for you to join us here at Myrtle Grove Baptist Church. And if you simply need prayer, our altar counselors will be here. You can just come and grab one of them or just 